0: Welcome to episode 34, today's show is titled Dinner with Stroud. On the show we have Michael G. Stroud, historian and writer. It's amazing what you can find in a closet. A closet is designed not only for clothes, sports equipment, old albums, and unfinished projects, but a closet is a place for memories. You see, history is personal. It is not the clash of armies. It is not the discussion of retrograde operations or the merits of defense in depth. History is not economy of force, mass, or even maneuver. It is not dates memorized in childhood songs, as in 1492 Columbus sailed the ocean blue. History is an overwhelming desire to know how it really was. And that desire can come from the discovery of photos in a box, letters written in cursive script, and even the discovery of a uniform hanging in a closet. Stroud's father once wore a dress uniform. At age seven, Michael found it in his closet. And at that age, all you could do is gawk and admire the colors and touch the shapes of the bits of metals and ribbons upon the chest. All you could do is to remember to ask your father about it. You see, a uniform is a record of the wearer, an accounting of the owner's location during war and peace. The medals may tell of conflict and a record of his or her organizational membership by symbolic crests and patches pinned or sewn upon the cloth. A uniform is a record. For Gregory Stroud, Michael's father, a bronze star with oak leaf cluster indicates heroism during battle, the Army Commendation Medal for noticed meritorious service, the Good Conduct Medal for exemplary good conduct and fidelity, and the National Defense Medal for serving in a period of national emergency. But one stands out. The ribbon has stripes of green, yellow, and red. The medal itself has a dragon hiding in a thicket of bamboo. It is the Vietnam Service Medal. It is awarded to all service members of the armed forces who, between July 4, 1965 and March 28, 1973, served in Southeast Asia, it is a medal designating a service member's participation in military operations in Vietnam. Today, Vietnam is known for its beaches, rivers, Buddhist pagodas, and bustling cities. Tourism is high in this beautiful country. The islands, the countryside, rice paddies are all colored in intense hues of green The capital city is Hanoi, and as pastoral the landscape is now, at one time was wrought with intense conflict. You see, history is personal. Sometimes all you have to do is ask the question, what did you see, what is it like, tell me how it really was, and sometimes you don't get the answers you seek. History is personal. When asked by a seven-year-old son on the meaning of the ribbons, the only answer Stroud got was simply put, for doing what I had to do. History is not just a date in a book. It is experience shrouded in context and points of view. For those that witness history, close up, for those that witness a period of time within the life of a country, A combat base called Fubai can be clouded with day-to-day tasks and doing what you had to do in the middle of intensified moments of shock and awe. Sometimes such memories are locked away and hard to bring to the surface. Michael's father, Gregory Stroud, passed away, taking the personal details with him. But he did leave his son a legacy, an overwhelming passion, to know how it really was. The local library provides clues, books are available on military strategy through loans and the internet. Ancient warfare and battle analysis are the subjects of research and discussion. It is even talked about at the dinner table. Do people really discuss such things over dinner? Yes, they do. I have sat at a table while passions rose on the opinion of the tide of battle being won by the taking of a hill or the holding of a bridge. And sometimes what stops the discussion, the argument, is the person that says, I have been there. I've seen it with my own eyes. I was there. History is personal. Travel is a tool to find answers. Sometimes it can help to see how it really was. Stroud has visited repeatedly England, France, and Italy. He has walked the battlefields of the American Civil War. He has churned this passion into the study of the past and formulated his fascination into writing magazine articles of how it really was. He could golf. He could collect football jerseys. He could turn passion into a mundane pastime, but instead of that, he writes articles trying to understand such subjects of why thirty English and thirty French knights would face off in a duel to decide the fate of a duchy. He has pondered on how the Romans became masters of the Mer Nostrum, and even searches the records of his father's experience in a land on the other side of the world at a time not that long ago. As it was for the knight, the Roman and the airborne soldier, history is personal. This is the dinner banter I want over my plate. Just recently, he was selected for the 2023 Undergraduate Academic Scholar Award for the School of Arts, Humanities and Education at American Military University. Join me for dinner with Stroud. Uh, Michael Stroud, uh, thank you for being on Ancient Rome Refocused. Thank you for having me. Um, this is a question I ask a lot of people. And, and <laughs> what do you think about history? What, what do you think it is?
1: History for me is I've always viewed it in a broad contextual scale. I view it as the study of the never ending story of humanity as a whole. And that's very broad because history itself is very broad. It's broad with a lot of little branches. And I see, to me, I've always seen history as this huge tree. And all the little branches and little pieces that come off from it are little side notes and little bits of stories. And the leaves are like the people that were part of that story. So for me, it's really just an encompassing. And it's always growing and changing. So it never ends. So for me, that's the fascination of it. It's a never-ending, evolving um story that we all are a part of at all times so it's endlessly fascinating because you can never learn all of it it's impossible and that's the beauty of it because there's so much to learn and to relearn because a lot of times in history we just we rediscover what we already knew as a society and then we're like wow i didn't know our ancient civilizations could do the x y and z or i didn't know they went through such things that that we kind of share that struggle now, but in a different context, of course. So it's just the fascination with all that broad scale that is available. And it doesn't matter if you're in, if you're in Japan or the islands of or in the island of Guam or South America or here, everybody has a never ending story in a background. To me, it's just fascinating.
0: You know, one of the things that fascinates me about it is, is that, uh, I don't think we give those who lived in the past enough credit. They were thinking individuals. They had brains. uh, And, uh, you know, uh, I think uh, I use an example. One is a small example where they talked about how uh, I read one person's book where he talked about how there was actually rolling windows that they discovered. (laughs) That that they actually figured out how to roll a window to the left and right like we have in some basement (laughs) apartments. And, and the, other, the other, the more mind-boggling thing is the, uh, uh, the very basic computer that was found in the Mediterranean. Yep. The uh, Antikythera computer. Footnote, the Antikythera mechanism. If you get a chance, look up this fascinating device that was discovered in the Mediterranean Ocean. It's about the size of a mantle clock, and this device sank on board a ship around the first century BCE. Made out of bronze, it seems to be an astronomical device that could keep track of the positions of the sun, moon, and the lunar phases. In other words, a sophisticated pre electronic computer to track the moon's position across the sky.
1: Yep. Yep, yeah, man. who
0: who would have thought it, but
1: right. <laughs> it, it, it's amazing.
0: So what do you think makes a good historian?
1: There are a couple of common threads, I feel. One, um, the ability to pull together different diverse pieces of information from good sources, primary sources, secondary sources, personal interviews when possible. But taking that information and being able to weave it together in a narrative that is easy to relate, that entertains and informs, I think is so important. One of the personal credos I have as a historian is I always want to tell stories, historical stories that are easily readable and relatable to people, no matter what the audience is. Now, a historian, like anything, will tailor their material to to the audience. It can be more academic or broad. But I find as a regular basis, the way we want to engage more people is to make the material relatable and readable by the broad audience as possible. And I think that's where we can engage more people in the fascination around history. And I think to add on to that is the willingness and the ability to stay flexible academically to new discoveries that change our perceptions of our past. And I think sometimes that becomes a challenge for some academics. They get so indoctrinated into, into what they've always known that they almost refuse to be willing and open to change. And we see it in archaeology. We've seen it in the hist- history field. And that's unfortunate because then you lose sight of the bigger picture, which is a goal of a historian is to tell the story of the past and it's to do it as dispassionately as possible. So you let the audience absorb the information. I want to stay informed to new findings, but also be able to relay that in a way that appeals to many people. So I just think you have to have some underlying flexibility and that ability to weave different bits of information together in a context that others, that a general audience will find exciting and maybe really spark their interest in something more as well.
0: You know, you made me think about something. Uh the, the thing that kind of irritates me about uh, uh some uh historians uh is the fact that there or some people who read history is they try to put uh modern mores and modern uh uh ideas of how society should function on something that is happening in the past. Do you I mean, do you think it's wrong to move down that path, or do you think it's something that people just want to hope? happened back in 1400 that that uh, the people thought this way i mean i i, I believe there was somebody who said that uh, the past is a different country footnote as usual my memory was not sharp enough to remember the quote exactly so i looked it up here it is the past is a foreign country they do things differently there This came from L.P. Hartley's 1953 novel, The Go-Between. It's about a boy finding a journal and realizing he suppressed a memory from his childhood. Though the story is more about a boy drawn into fulfilling the task of being a messenger between two star-crossed lovers separated by class, the quote itself rings true when it comes to history itself. Just a thought.
1: There's a tendency to to view many things through the lens that we currently have, and where uh, each of us individually are the product of our surroundings, our upbringing, our morals, our values, and all of that. Now, society can impose its own set of rules and restrictions and how to view things, absolutely, and every society is different. I think, honestly, that we are better served as historians, but as people as well, that yes, we live in our current context with all the trappings of everything that that entails, but I think we do a disservice to our ancestors and the history, and it's telling when we try to project current morals and values, to your point, onto the events of the past. And there's a few reasons for that. One, then we tend to um, cloud the lens of history by imposing such values, and not, uh, it, and it will prevent us from seeing what really occurred based on the situation now it doesn't make things that occurred in the past right based on our va- values now you know simple fact is the removal of statues in the confederates uh, memorials and things down south and i have a lot of historian friends that live in virginia and down south and there's a lot of strong uh, opinions about all that now the individuals that those are for for instance. There's nothing that takes away from their, in my opinion, for, as a historian, their their valor and their conduct of of their fight that they believed in. Now, do, do I share the values of what some of their belief systems were? Absolutely not. But how is it my right to demonize somebody that's been dead for 200 years or 150 years? My job is to is to is to take all the totality of that information, relay that story. In a dispassionate, neutral way and not impose my current values on something in the past, because unfortunately, slavery and imprisonment existed for the entirety of humanity Um, and even into current times, it exists, unfortunately, in other parts of the world. So we have to look at things in the context that they occurred. And I think that right there is the important part. It's about the context of when they occurred so we can still educate ourselves based on those things that happen, but not blind ourselves to what happened and not try to erase the, the past because we don't like what did occur. And I think that by erasing our past, we deny ourselves a future that is, that is more conductive of understanding when we're fully aware of what occurred previously.
0: Now, I know you're currently writing a book about England's rise to naval supremacy. I believe it's for the pen and sword books.
1: Yeah, that's, a, um, that's actually a very interesting and fascinating story because, you know, a lot of us have grown up and we think of England as the naval power that it was for a majority of its time as a country and as an empire but the interesting part really is when you peel back the layers of all that you can really get to the crux of where did all that begin and really naval supremacy in england really truly began and consolidated around the tudor era um which is at the end of which was at the end of the war of the roses when henry the 7th was able to vanquish his enemies and become King of England. And he was really the father of the Royal Navy in a lot of ways. And the first way is that he, he was able to basically formulate and establish a nexus of Royal Navy ships that didn't really exist up to that point. Um, And it was a core group is basically under 10 ships, but these were officially sanctioned and paid for ships, which up to that point, England's naval history was one of, the Vikings are coming, I'm going to commandeer all the, all the ships that we can, throw some troops on it, and try to fight back. That was basically the gist of it. It was very reactionary. But from Henry VII on, really starting with him, he realized the value after the wars of the roses that a navy, a continuous navy of some sort is really valuable in the protection of the, the realm, preventing pirates, but also as a symbol of power. That, the navy, especially,
0: especially for an island nation.
1: Ex- exactly right. I mean, kind of common sense there, but but underlying all that was the fact that it was very expensive. So previous kings didn't want to invest the money to maintain a navy all the time. They saw it as cheaper to just, when there was a threat, they commandeered the merchant ships, they militarize them, throw some men on there, some archers, and call it a day and send them out. But Henry the VII realized that besides troop transports, that having a standing Navy at your beck and call and was a better way to kind of head off potential issues. His son really then took it to the next tier. And really, Henry VIII, in my, my mind, is really, and he's considered by many to be the father of the Royal Navy as it evolved. Uh, he took a, a a small core group of ships and quadrupled the size of the standing fleet. He took a personal direct interest in designing ships himself. So, which was which is something often lost in the d- discussion of Henry VIII, but also as to the navy itself. Uh, his most famous ship, the Mary Rose, he personally helped design that
0: ship. Footnote: The Mary Rose. An English warship commissioned during the reign of Henry VIII. It served in the Royal Navy until it was sunk in 1545. The wreck was raised from the ocean in 1982 and was put on display. This 473 year old warship is on display
1: at Portsmouth, England. And he helped to actually have a hand in designing cannons and everything for his ships. So he realized. That especially when he broke from Rome and it was excommunicated, he's like, it's probably a good idea that I really strengthen up the na- Navy because Rome's not happy. I've got all these other empires that aren't happy with, with me at all, especially the, the French um, and eventually the Spanish, that uh, he needed to do something about about that. So really improvements on the uh, materials and the designs of the ships to the size of the fleet to a, um, an, an organizational structure. It was what all came to be under him. So the book is going to really explore and, and really speak to the, the creation of the Royal Navy under the Tudors, and it'll co- cover the entirety of it, but also speak to how, the, how that led to them becoming a world empire. Because an island nation to be able to go from this relatively small population that they had and basically had their hands over the entire world for hundreds of years was really due to the Royal Navy and the ability of the Navy to crisscross around the world and impose their, their power in England's will. And it wasn't because of the size of the army, because the army was minuscule compared to others, but it was the Navy's ability to control the water and control commerce that allowed them to become a superpower. What was the height of Tudor sea power? Um, A lot will point to 1588, which is the Great Armada, and the victory that England pulled out. I would contest that, however, and say it really was by about 1547. And that was really at the time when Henry VIII was able to increase the navy from, I think it was seven ships to about 40 ships. And the caliber of these ships was far and above anything that was on the water at the time. They were bigger. They had all the recent enhancements that allowed them to outgun their um, adversaries. They had better cannons. They developed grape shot and other types of of uh, um, ammunition that didn't exist by others. They had gun ports that didn't exist until them so they could have cannons lower to the water, which increased the stability of their of their ships. And they could fire full broadsides that other ships could not at the time. So when you take those and some other inventions and put them in totality to me, that is, that is the height of when the World Navy really came into being as a serious threat to the other maritime powers of the, of the day and age. Now, the Armada bat- battle was a huge one. Most people are very familiar with it. It's very important.
0: Footnote. I'm stepping out of the interview here to relate a family story. The one thing about history, whether you admit it or not, it burrows itself into the conversation, and it always comes up at family get-togethers. Part of my family came from Ireland. My father would make charts of names of family members and the counties that they lived. There was one thing that he always was a bit mystified about. The name Roderick. Roderick kept on coming up. Now, the other names, aunts, uncles, cousins, had names along the lines of Cafferty, Dennehy, Daw, and Gallagher, going back for generations. But there was old Roderick, out of an area called Sligo, and Dad would call him Rodriguez and claim him as a survivor of the Armada. He imagined there was a whole lot of mating going on while hiding from the English. Well, that was Dad, and you know the English destroyed the Armada, and the Spanish survivors swam to shore. They had to hide, basically. To my understanding, the remains of Armada ships have laid undisturbed on the seabed of a small beach off the coast of Sligo for 397 years. I hope old Rodriguez was kept warm by the Irish lasses on those cold Irish nights.
1: But there's a, you know, that's where we really saw the English Navy put a lot of that into play. But to me, it really occurred before that.
0: When I read about the Roman Navy, I get this early history where it seems to me that the Romans weren't really a sea power or they didn't really think about it hard enough. And, And I hear about Pompeii and the pirates and he basically was able to effectively take back the sea from the pirates and, and such. And how uh, they developed things, uh, a, a crossing bridge onto an enemy ship and hold it fast and then flood it with soldiers. But I find it amazing that a, a land-based uh, military uh, just took to sea power so effectively. But it seems like they did it in a relatively short space of time. Uh, is it just come from how practical the Romans were or they learned from their enemies? I mean, there had to have been pirates in the Mediterranean who are much more sea had seaworthy
1: vessels. I, I don't know. Yeah. what You've got a couple different key things to do with Roman naval history happening, actually. The first one, uh, Pompeii and the pirates. That was uh, an endeavor around 667 B.C., when In the eastern part of the Mediterranean, pirate pirating has been around for a long time, but it was getting at a critical stage for early Rome because at that point, pirates were raiding their grain stores, and grain was the lifeblood of the main source of food for Rome. So the Roman Senate had had enough by 67 BC and tasked Pompeii. It's like, look, we have to do something about this. It's at a critical stage. Whatever you need to do, you have full authority to 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 do away with the pirates. So basically, what Pompey did at the time is he just basically commandeered any and all the ships he could that Roman that Rome had control of, and which ended up being a lot of Greek ships actually. Which Greek ships at the time were some of the best anyway. So he commandeered a bunch of Greek ships, the sailors on them as well, and he split them into thirteen fleets, a wave. Down through the Eastern Mediterranean, just wiping out the pirates in successive order until they were pushed back to their little stronghold, which they destroyed after about three or four months. What was interesting at the end of the hat is uh, he took twenty thousand prisoners, captured ninety of their ships, and he basically destroyed organized pirating forever after that. It's a very methodical approach. Now. Fast forward a, a bit more, and you mentioned the drawbridge. That's actually called a Corvus, also known as a Raven, R A V E N. The Corvus was the Roman answer to not having the skill set that the um, other powers of the day had at, at the open sea. And that actually was um, credited to uh, the names Caius Dullius, third century BC, during the First Punic War. And he actually is credited with um, not necessarily creating it, but having the, pers- having the engineer that created it, having him put that on all Roman ships at the time so they could contest the Carthaginians. which at the first Punic War, they were the supreme mar- maritime power. The Carthaginians were, they were the superpower of the Mediterranean at the time, and their fleet was hundreds of ships, and they could mass produce them when nobody else could. Polybius, the ancient Roman historian, is one of those sources of this misconception actually that Rome was went from a land power and basically they never thought about the sea to all of a sudden, boom, their are geniuses on the water too. He's actually the, the, kind of the impetus for that thought process in the writings and annals of stuff that he wrote. The, the mythology was that our Carthenogen ship had shipwrecked on um, Italian soil and Romans found it and supposedly reverse engineered it. And that's how they all of a sudden became geniuses on the water.
0: You know, that, that's pretty funny because, you know, you always hear about <laughs> uh, pilots are told if they, if their aircraft is shot down, they, and if they're looking up to walk away, they're, yeah. they're, they're instructed to toss a grenade into the uh, plane <laughs> yeah. uh, to, to make it extremely difficult for the enemy to, to reverse engineer so to speak
1: right uh that's
0: that's kind of (laughs) interesting things don't change i gotta i gotta share with you something in 1963 my parents bought me a remco big caesar roman galley i don't know if you've ever seen it google it if you've ever seen it and what made this interesting is it looked like a roman galley it was a it was a toy maker's uh imagining of a roman galley, and it, <laughs> and and you could tell it was made for a kid because the colors were so bright but <laughs> but it had a mast a sail and two banks of oars, which i think you call that a monoream.
1: yeah there are monoremes bi triremes,
0: yeah well what made this toy so interesting was with two double a batteries and you flip <laughs> and you flip a blue switch at the bottom the yellow oars reached out and pulled back. Ah, oh, and the there were, and there were two wheel, three wheels. I believe it had to be a three wheels. It was a large toy, three wheels. It would move forward and then drift to a stop. Wow! It was it was a, it was <laughs> ingenious.
1: Wow, that's better than anything out now.
0: <laughs> and and I, I seriously, I think yeah. kids would love that. Yeah. And I and to top it off, my parents had a. Blue carpet throughout the house, wall to wall carpeting. Wow. Blue carpet. So I had my personal ocean <laughs> <clears throat> that I could watch this thing. And you got Roman soldiers to stand on the deck, and to top it off, get this, uh, yep. uh, a uh, ballista. Yep, it had yep. two little ballistas that with little yellow rocks that you could fire with a rubber band. <laughs> wow, it, it was it was a wonderful toy, but. <laughs> but the wall to wall carpeting went to a stairway and it went up the stairs, the blue, blue thing. So I had a waterfall uh, in, in my imagination. And nice. I remember at the time, all all I could think of was years later. I thought, you know, that carpet is my my wine dark sea. Uh, <laughs> uh of, of which I, but I never ever forgot that toy. So I, wow. I I'm and I went on uh uh eBay. To see what it was being uh, uh, sold for now, mm-hmm. it something that in 1963 was like uh, twenty dollars, which was a pretty good amount of money for that time period, is yep. now going for four hundred bucks. <laughs> I and believe it, and I have to tell you something, Michael. It's worth every penny.
1: <laughs> it sounds great. I would have loved that myself. <laughs> uh, it, it's just, it's just
0: wonderful. And these, these toys are getting old now. But the thing is, is if I had one right now, I, I I had this vague memory as a teenager looking out the back window and it's sitting on the garbage can, which my father was now conducting one of his major cleanouts in of the attic.
1: <laughs> and, and I
0: should have said something. But mm. uh, uh, if that if one could uh, rejuvenate that to find it wow. and rejuvenate it, it was just a marvelous piece of uh, of fun. Oh, um, wow. but but anyway, I. <laughs> What do you think the average speed of a Roman ship was?
1: Well, back uh, back at the time, uh, a trireme could average between 8 and 14 miles per hour or about 7 to 12 and a half knots under carefully coordinated and drilled r- r- rowing. That's not a bad clip at all. Now, the key with that is coordinated because Rome wasn't very coordinated early on with their maritime endeavors and actually the the very early roman ships were slave run they were press service slaves now Uh i want to make this point clear um that was very early on now early roman ships and rome had ships for almost the entirety of its existence because they were on rivers they were a riverine uh Republic and then empire. so they were around waterways everywhere let alone the mediterranean so they were used to flat bottom ships for rivers and then they were exposed to the mediterranean sea as well because they had existing ports so they were adaptive to the trade and everything So they have experience. That's why the whole myth around they suddenly went from a land-based power to having ships just doesn't hold water to the reality of history. And the reality of history is they absolutely had exposure to many cultures that were experts at the waters, especially Greeks. The Greeks are some of the best sailors at the time. And Greeks were all were a very important part of the civilization of that part of the world, so they had direct contact with them at all times
0: you know you think, you make you make a great point these weren't stupid people
1: right. I mean they,
0: they were probably taking they were probably taking culture back to Rome but there had to be some guy who worked for a rich for a rich patrician who was saying yeah. you know this this uh uh sales system or this ore system or this rigging would do so much better on our ships uh, and, and, and either doing some drawings or, or, or just taking the ship. Uh, yep. uh, there had to been people doing it. I always be, hear people talking about, Oh, the Romans took Greek culture. They probably <laughs> took Greek technology
1: as well. Absolutely. Absolutely did. And they borrowed from the Carthaginians, who were the descendants of the Phoen- Phoenicians. So they were, You alluded to to this earlier, part of the success of Rome as a whole, and it translated into their ability to create a navy and become a power there, was their adaptability.
0: Footnote. Check out Michael Stroud's article, Rome, Master of the Sea in Strategy and Tactics Magazine, number 341. It is a thorough, detailed, yet engrossing narrative of the development of the ancient Roman navy, its key battles, personalities, and ships, and how they allowed Rome to become masters of the Mediterranean. Footnote, personal observation. I am a huge fan of the 1959 religious epic, Ben-Hur, starring Charlton Heston. There's a great sea battle scene in this movie, however, CGI at that time was non-existent, and the special effects of the triremes battling it out were nothing more than toy ships. Not small enough for your bathtub, but large enough in size to compare to a child's toy wagon. Now, the 2016 remake of Ben hur relied heavily on CGI, but they do a very good job of it. The recreation of the galley slave ship is the best so far. Below deck is cramped, and the outside world is only seen through ore ports and wormholes for glimpses of the ongoing battle. The below ship view is lit by beams of light coming through the above deck that lacks perfect seams. You can tell it's a handmade vessel. We are treated, odd to say that, right? We are treated to the claustrophobic interior of the world of slaves chained to the oars. Images of Greek fire, ancient napalm, slopping down into the hold as flaming arrows tried to ignite the ship, and the nightmarish view of a pirate ship aiming its iron beak to broadside the Roman ship. Never mind the poor Roman soldier tied to the tip of the beak and is about to have his guts splattered up against the hull it's all good stuff and stuff that I never imagined
1: as I played with my Remco Roman galley. Romans were ingenious at being adaptable to the situation of circumstances. So what does that mean? Well, that means simply that you may beat them a couple times, but they're going to take something away each time as to why they got beat. And there's always that ingenuity around figuring that out. So for for me, that's what they were able to do is adapt and to be able to improve upon what was already there and make, and put a Roman spin on it. Now, I mentioned that story about a, re, uh, about a wrecked Carthaginian ship. Realistically, what I believe happened there is that, yes, they found a ship because historically there's evidence they probably did. But it didn't create their entire navy. I bet that allowed them to take away technological enhancements that they said, wow, this is a great idea. Let's make this, let's adapt this to our ships and how we fight. Because they were a land-based military power. So that was their first step into really taking that power from the land and putting it out to sea. So I think that, so taking some adaptions um, and putting them onto Roman ships, that allowed them to really start to stretch their legs, if you will, from the land out to the sea and really begin to contest who controlled the Mediterranean.
0: Why should people study history at all? Or you could say, why should people study the classics?
1: I say, you know, studying history. People should really study history. And it could be a finite history as in their own history, or maybe their family, or their state, or a, a, a general, a battle. It can be anything, any form of history. I think it's critically important because that gives us insight as to who we are, And where we have gotten to now, both as individuals, as a society, and where we like to to go. Because the more things change, the more they stay the same, that old adage goes. And history is all about discovery and rediscovery of what already existed. And we we can glean so much out of that that help inform us and make us better informed to make decisions going forward. And I think we do ourselves a disservice completely when we shun history, we turn ourselves off to history, and we don't keep an open mind to it because there's nothing but valuable insight to be learned from the study of history in any form.
0: Any project you're working on or
1: Yeah, I've um I'm gonna have a um I'm gonna have a couple pieces coming out next year in some different publications. I'll have a um other than um my article on the Roman Navy, which should be out in the summer issue of a strategy and tactics magazine here in the U- u.s i'm going to have another article coming out in military history magazine that's going to be around the battle of zawar which is from the soviet afghan war in the late 80s it's called the battle of the caves and nice. um so that's going to be out and then i have a piece on um byzantium that should be out Either late next year, or the year after, in uh, ancient uh, in medieval warfare magazine, which is out of the Netherlands actually, and that's going to be about my take on how the uh, the the Byzantine Empire was doomed to fail because of two uh, two factors: uh, Justinian's wars and building programs, and the rise of Islamic armies.
0: I'd like to talk again sometime if possible. Oh. You know, I know I enjoyed myself is the 40 minutes went really fast.
1: It it did. I didn't. I wasn't aware either. I was like, wow, it is almost over.
0: <laughs> All right. Yeah. You, you have a good evening. Same to you, Rob. All right. Take care. Bye now. Check out Michael Stroud's published article in Military History magazine, the May issue of 2022. Titled, Combat of the Thirty, is a fascinating and obscure story of the best example of formalized combat that occurred between 30 French knights and 30 English knights for the control of a duchy. You have to ponder just a little bit about a world where 30 opponents on both sides square off to decide the fate of a battle. The past, without a doubt, is a different world and worth a study on how people think, and is a subject worthy of historians, and possibly a balladeer. See you next time on Ancient Rome Refocused.